For those of you who are from the East Coast, this is the graveyard shift. <laughs> I'm actually pretty glad that they put me at this time because I'm on Pacific time. Which means that right now, you know, I'm, uh, I'm just starting the evening in California. So it's a real blessing uh, to be able to speak at this time of the day. I know that for some of you it probably is a struggle because for some of you it's already be 10 o'clock, beyond 10 o'clock. But I hope that uh, we're able to concentrate. We're going to continue our study on Elijah in Scripture. But before we do, we want to once again draw close to the Lord's throne in prayer. Never should Scripture be opened without prayer. So I invite you to bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, we thank you uh, for the many blessings that we have received here at this 3ABN camp meeting. And Father, we're anticipating a great celebration this weekend. We ask that you will pour out your spirit upon this place, that lives will be transformed and changed through the power of Jesus. We ask that as we open your holy word, that book that you inspired through your spirit, that this evening you will open minds and hearts that we might understand your will and that we might be willing to receive it. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of approaching your throne in prayer, your awesome throne. And we just ask that you will answer our prayer because we come to you boldly in the name of Jesus. Amen. In this series, we have been talking about Elijah. Basically, up till now, we have studied the Elijah of the Middle Ages and the Elijah of the Old Testament, the historical Elijah. As I've mentioned, there are actually four Elijahs in Scripture. The first Elijah is the Old Testament Elijah. He's the historical person. The second Elijah is what I call the prophetic Elijah, and that's the one that we are going to speak about this evening. The third Elijah I have called the ecclesiastical Elijah. That is the Elijah of the Middle Ages, the Elijah of the period of papal supremacy. And the last Elijah is the apocalyptic Elijah or the end time Elijah. Now we've noticed that we have a governing principle when we study the Elijahs. The first two of the Elijahs are literal individuals. And their enemies are literal individuals. But when you get to the church age and the end time, the individuals in the story of Elijah become symbolic of worldwide movements or worldwide systems. In other words, no, we're no longer dealing with specific individuals. We're dealing with typology. The individuals become types or symbols of worldwide movements and worldwide systems. Now in our study, we have noticed that the main protagonists of the Elijah story are first of all a king. The king is a weak political leader. In other words, the king has no moral backbone to make decisions. The second person is a harlot woman. In the case of the historical Elijah, it is Jezebel, strong-willed, determined, knows what she wants, and uses the king 
the political power to accomplish her purposes. Then we also noticed in the Old Testament story that Jezebel had prophets, false prophets, through whom she extended her counterfeit religion. They ate at her table, which means that they did the bidding of Jezebel. And we notice that this threefold union actually controlled and manipulated the people of Israel so that there was an apostasy among the majority of God's people and only a small remnant remained. And of course God called Elijah to denounce this system, to denounce these three powers that had brought apostasy into Israel and to try and bring Israel back to the straight and narrow, back to their Creator, back to their God. Now there's another principle that we need to take into account as we begin our study of the prophetic Elijah. And that is that the Old Testament Elijah and the prophetic Elijah that we're going to study this evening have details that overlap and one Elijah has details that the other Elijah does not have. And when we study the end time Elijah we have to take material from the Old Testament Elijah and also from the New Testament Elijah or the prophetic Elijah and put all of the details together because they all come together in the fulfillment of the end time Elijah. Let me just give you an illustration of what I mean. In Revelation chapter 13 we have the beast now we know that the beast represents the Roman Catholic system but in Revelation 13 we also have a false prophet it's the beast that rises from the earth with two horns like a lamb this beast is called the false prophet this beast is really the false prophet of the first beast because the false prophet leads everyone to worship the first beast makes an image of the first beast and imposes the mark of the first beast. In other words the false prophet is the false prophet of the beast because the false prophet does everything that the beast wants. Now when you come to Revelation 17 the symbolism is different but the meaning is the same. In Revelation 17 you don't have a beast and you don't have the false prophet that persecute God's people. In Revelation 17 you have different symbolism but with the same meaning. In Revelation 17 instead of the beast you have a harlot woman. Instead of the false prophets you have the daughters of the harlot because she's the mother. And instead of the, the, the dragon that you find in Revelation chapter 12 and 13 you have the kings of the earth with whom the harlot fornicates and she controls the, these daughters or the false prophet. So in other words when you put Revelation 13 and Revelation 17 together you have basically the same meaning but different symbols are used. Now the Old Testament ends in expectancy. Do you know that the Old Testament is really an open book? Because it ends in expectancy. Something is missing from the Old Testament. People anticipate someone who is going to come in the future. Notice Malachi chapter 4 and verses 5 and 6. Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 and 6. Here is a promise that is made in the last book of the Bible, the last two verses of the Old Testament specifically. Behold, 
I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers lest I come and strike the earth with a curse and so the Old Testament ends with God promising that he is going to send Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord the Old Testament ends with anticipation of a coming Elijah a new Elijah if you please now the New Testament clearly identifies this Elijah go with me to Luke chapter 1 and verses 16 and 17 here the angel Gabriel appears to Zacharias the father of John the Baptist and I want you to notice what the angel Gabriel says to Zacharias chapter 1 of Luke verses 16 and 17 speaking about his son that will be born John the Baptist and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God let me ask you who is Elijah sent to? is he sent to the pagans and the secular people? no! once again we are told here that his mission is to those who profess to be God's people because it says he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and then it says he that is John the Baptist will also go before him that is with, Je with uh, before Jesus in the spirit and power of whom? of Elijah John the Baptist will come in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord and so in the New Testament we have John the Baptist identified as Elijah now this is not the only text that identifies John the Baptist as Elijah in the New Testament go with me to Matthew chapter 17 and verses 10 through 13 this is immediately after the transfiguration and I want you to notice that there's a question that the disciples ask Jesus once again Matthew 17 verse 10 to 13 it says here and his disciples asked him saying why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first if you're the Messiah we haven't seen Elijah come Jesus answered and said to them indeed Elijah is coming first and will what? ah Elijah is not an innovator he does not bring new light Elijah restores and brings people back to the message and so it continues saying Jesus answered and said to them indeed Elijah is coming first and will restore all things but I say to you that Elijah has come already and they did not know him but did to him whatever they wished likewise the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist so this is the second text in the New Testament that identifies John the Baptist as the New Testament Elijah or what I call the prophetic Elijah there's a third passage in the New Testament in the Gospels that identify John as Elijah Matthew chapter 11 verses 11 to 14 Matthew 11 verses 11 through 14 here we find Jesus speaking once again about John the Baptist and this is what he says assuredly I say to you among those born of women 
There has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And verse 14 says, And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. Does scripture clearly identify the New Testament Elijah? Yes. In fact, when John the Baptist appeared, many actually believed that he was Elijah. And the reason why is because John the Baptist lived in the wilderness like Elijah. He ate like Elijah. He dressed like Elijah. He called Israel to repentance like Elijah. He rebuked a king like Elijah. And he called Israel back to the Lord their God. In fact, we're told in the Gospel of Matthew, now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. People said, this is just like Elijah. John the Baptist is the New Testament Elijah. And why did God raise up John the Baptist? Let's notice several texts to see what his mission was. The mission of the Old Testament Elijah was to restore. It was to bring Israel back to the Lord their God. It was a message to the church of that day and age. The church was in apostasy. It had gone away from the Lord. And so Elijah comes and he preaches, if you wish, to the church and says, come back to the Lord. Luke chapter 1 and verse 16, which we already read, tells us, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Notice he's turning the children of Israel to the Lord their God. I thought the children of Israel already, already had God as their Lord. Obviously, they were in apostasy. And in verse 17, we are told he will also go before him. That is, John the Baptist will go before Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah. And then it explains to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The role of Elijah is to prepare a people for the arrival of the Lord. And you know what? The Old Testament Elijah prepared the way for a great reformation that was brought by his successor, Elisha. And so we find John the Baptist preparing the way for a people to accept the one who would come after him who would bring a great reformation Jesus Christ the Messiah in Matthew chapter 11 verse 10 which we already read once again we find the purpose of God raising John the Baptist as the New Testament Elijah it says there for this is he of whom it is written behold I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. In other words, his purpose is to bring people back to the Lord their God so that they're prepared for the coming of the Lord. In Luke chapter 3 verses 4 and 5 we find once again a description of the role and purpose of this Elijah. We're told there in Luke 3 verses 4 and 5 as it is written in the books in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet saying the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord make his path straight 
Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough ways smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now what is meant by these expressions? Uh, every valley, every mountain, crooked places, rough ways, etc. What is meant by that? I love the description of this that is given by Ellen White in the book The Desire of Ages, page 135. She explains uh, what happened in the past. You know, you didn't have paved highways like we do today. You had basically unpaved roads and because, because of the weather, you know, holes would develop and little hills would, would develop in the road and the road had to be kept cleared. She describes in Desire of Ages, page 135, anciently when a king journeyed through the less frequented parts of his dominion a company of men was sent ahead of the royal chariot to level the steep places and to fill up the hollows that the king might travel in safety and without hindrance this custom is employed by the prophet to illustrate the work of the gospel in the book God's Amazing Grace page 249 Ellen White explains what, what this symbolically means, you know, filling in the, the holes in the highway and, and leveling out the rough places. She explains, the work of reformation here brought to view by John, the purging of heart and mind and soul is one that is needed by many who today profess to have the faith of Christ. Wrong practices that have been indulged in need to be put away. The crooked paths need to be made straight and the rough places smooth. The mountains and hills of self-esteem and pride need to be brought low. There is need of bringing forth fruits, meat for repentance, when the work is done in the experience of God's believing people. All flesh, she says, will see the salvation of the Lord. So basically it speaks about being converted and the life that comes from a converted heart the life will be made straight the holes will be filled in pride will be abased that's the work that John the Baptist was to perform in preparation for the arrival of the Messiah and that it's the preparation that we must have for the coming of the, sec of the Messiah the second time in power and glory in Matthew chapter 17 and verse 11 once again we're told that John the Baptist was called to restore all things it says there Jesus answered and said to them indeed Elijah is coming first and will restore all things Elijah was not an innovator Elijah did not bring new truths and new doctrines his purpose was to bring God's people back to where they had gone astray from Matthew chapter 3 verses 1 to 3 we have a description of the message of John the Baptist it says in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah saying the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord make his path straight in other words Elijah is calling God's own people to repentance let me ask you did Elijah restore the true gospel? well I have a little different do you remember concept. that in the Old Testament Elijah built the altar of the Lord that had been broken down he reestablished the sacrificial system that represented the sacrifice of Christ how did John the Baptist introduce Jesus? 
You know it. John chapter 1 and verse 29. It says the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so John the Baptist is attracting the attention of God's people to the Lamb of God just like Elijah in the Old Testament rebuilt the altar with twelve stones and at the hour of the evening sacrifice placed the victims upon the altar. John the Baptist is fulfilling the same role as the Old Testament Elijah. Let me ask you, did John the Baptist preach God's law? Yes he did. Do you know that John the Baptist was killed because he upheld the seventh commandment? Because he said, and we're going to study this in a few moments, he said to Herodias and to the king, you have an illicit sexual relationship. And it landed him in prison and made him eventually lose his head. John the Baptist preached the commandments of God. And incidentally, even though the Bible doesn't mention John the Baptist saying this specifically, one of the things that the Jews had done is they had, they had totally distorted the meaning of the Seventh-day Sabbath. The Sabbath, listen carefully, the Sabbath that was kept by the Jews in Christ's day was a counterfeit Sabbath because it was created by man. It was not the Sabbath created by God. It was a Sabbath that was created by them loaded down with all sorts of traditions, with all sorts of customs. The only difference between the days of Christ and the end time is that the controversy in the days of Christ was having to do with the wrong way whereas at the end of time it will be the wrong day. But the issue will be the same. You see the people in the days of Christ were worshiping themselves. They were not worshiping the Creator. The Sabbath had become an end in itself. God called the New Testament Elijah John the Baptist to say, folks behold the Lamb of God who takes this away the sin of the world. He calls John the Baptist to lift high the gospel but the law as well. And to call people not only to repentance but to produce fruit in their lives, the fruit of the Spirit. In Matthew chapter 3 verse 8 and verse 10 we find a clear reference to the fruit of the life that comes from repentance and accepting the Messiah. It says there in Matthew chapter 3 verse 8, therefore, John the Baptist is preaching, therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, they're really arrogant. They say, we, we're, we belong to the right church, to the true church. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is what? Is cut down and thrown into the fire. Did John the Baptist preach a message of judgment? He most certainly did. Did the Old Testament Elijah preach a message of judgment? He most certainly did. He said, listen folks, you can't limp between two opinions. If the Lord is God, you're going to follow Him. And if Baal is God, follow Him. In other words, his message was a message of separation of the righteous from the wicked. Did John the Baptist preach a message of judgment? He most certainly did. 
Matthew chapter 3 and verse 10 and also verse 12 tells us, and even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And then verse 12, his winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Notice that it's the fire that's unquenchable not with that which the fire consumes. You see when the Bible speaks about eternal fire as we were talking about in our question and answer session, the fire is eternal, but what it consumes is not eternal. Because what it's consuming is mortal man. And so folks, we have the message of Elijah in the New Testament. Very similar to the message of the Old Testament Elijah. Now I mentioned before that Elijah never appears alone. He always appears in bad company. Whenever Elijah appears, his three enemies appear with him because it's inconceivable that you would have Elijah and you would not have the other protagonists of the story. Every time Elijah appears in Scripture, his enemies appear along with him, which means that in the story of the New Testament Elijah, his enemies must be somewhere. Go with me to Mark chapter 6 and let's study this. This is very interesting. Mark chapter 6. This is talking about the martyrdom of John the Baptist. Let's see if there are three enemies in the story of John the Baptist. Mark chapter 6 and beginning with verse 14. First of all I want you to notice that in this story we have a king. What kind of characters does the king have? He has a weak moral character and he is easily influenced. Easily influenced by the strong will of a woman who was fornicating with him. Notice Mark 6 verse 14. Now king, notice he's called king. Now king Herod heard of him, that is of, John, of Jesus, for his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said it is Elijah, and others said it is the prophet, or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, this is John, whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. And so the first person in this story is the king. A weakling king. A king that is easy man easily manipulated that does not have a mind of his own. Now do you also have in this story a woman who is committed se committing sexual adultery? Absolutely. Notice Mark chapter 6 and verse 17. Mark chapter 6 and verse 17. We're told, For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John. Was that the king's idea? No. Because it continues saying, and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For he had what? For he had married her. So whose idea was it to cast John into prison? It was the, the mind of Herodias influencing the king that led John to end up in prison. Do you know what she especially did not like about John? 
the fact that John rebuked her fornication. You know, tomorrow morning we're going to study the end time Elijah. Is there a rebuke in Revelation chapter 17 and 18 where it speaks about the harlot fornicating with the kings of the earth? Absolutely. The end time Elijah, the, the story of the end time Elijah is described in all of its glory, if we can use the word, in Revelation chapter 17. And we're going to take a look at that chapter tomorrow morning. Notice Mark chapter 6 and verse 18 what John the Baptist said that enraged this woman. It says there, For John had said to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So you have this woman. She's really in the sight of God an adulterous woman. And she links up with the king an illicit relationship and she influences the mind of the king to throw John the Baptist into prison but there was a problem and it, that is that she could not actually kill John the Baptist she wanted to see John the Baptist dead there was something that restrained her just like in Revelation chapter 13 we have the beast has a deadly wound just like, like we studied in the story of the church of Thyatira the woman was thrown into a sickbed Jezebel was thrown into a sickbed somehow she had lost her power and she could not influence the king to do what she wanted notice what we find in Mark chapter 6 and verse 19 therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him but what? but she could not her hands are tied. She needs a helper. Somebody that can help her accomplish her purposes. And now this is where her daughter comes into view. Notice Mark chapter 6 and verse 21. Mark chapter 6 and verse 21 says, Then an opportune day, opportune for whom? Ah, for Herodias. Then an opportune day came when Herod, that is the king, on his birthday gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers, and the chief men of Galilee. And what do you think they were drinking? H2O? <laughs> what were they drinking? They were drinking wine. And as they drank the wine, his mind could not think straight. Is there any idea in Revelation that the kings of the earth drink the wine that the harlot gives them? See, this is typology in Scripture. God has given us three stories. The Old Testament Elijah, the New Testament Elijah, the Middle Ages Elijah, so that we can understand the end time Elijah. Whoever doesn't understand it has a real problem because God emphasizes it four times. Ellen White says in the book Temperance, pages 50 and 51, the false enchantment of the dizzy scene seemed to take away reason and dignity from Herod and his guests who were flushed with wine. The music and the wine and dancing had removed the fear and reverence of God from them. Nothing seemed sacred to Herod's perverted senses. And you know, this reminds me of the story of Nadab and Abihu. Do you know what the sin of Nadab and Abihu was? 
It was the sin of taking that which was common and presenting it to God as if it was holy. And if you read the story of Daniel 5 which describes the fall of ancient Babylon, the great sin of Belshazzar was taking that which was holy and treating it as if it was common. How does God feel when we come to church knowing better dressed in secular clothing? How does God feel when we take secular music and we attach sacred words? How does God feel when on Sabbath we speak our words instead of speaking holy words? By the way, the stories of Nadab and Abihu and the story of Belshazzar illustrates the issue at the end time. Because what the Christian world has done, and I say this with respect to everyone who's watching on television, the Christian world has taken a common day and they have presented it to God as if it was holy. And they have taken a holy day and they treat that day as if it was common. If God should accept that, He is going to have to apologize to Belshazzar and to Nehemiah and Abihu. Because when God says, you offer this which is holy, God is serious. He means offer just what He said. Now there's another protagonist in this story. See the king is under the influence of the wine and even though the Bible doesn't say it I believe that Herodias had something to do with the drinking of the wine. And so now the king cannot think straight. And this vile woman Herodias now has everything where she wants it. And the daughter comes into the picture. Notice Mark chapter 6 and verse 22. Let me ask you who's the dangerous figure in this story? Is it the king? No. Is it Salome the daughter? No. Who is the dangerous figure that moves, this, moves all, of the, all of the strings and is in control of the whole situation? It is the mother who is committing adultery. Notice Mark chapter 6 and verse 22. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced, and please Herod and those who sat with him the king said to the girl ask me whatever you want and I will give it to you and then he says I'll give you up to half of the kingdom he says in Mark 6 verse 23 he had to be drunk <laughs> half the kingdom for a dance give me a break <laughs> and we're told in verse 23 he also swore to her whatever you ask me I will give you up to half my kingdom. And now the mother comes into you. Is the daughter just like her mother? The daughter is an image of her mother. Now notice what happens. Chapter 6 and verse 24. So she went out and said to her mother. Notice that we have the three words. King, mother, daughter. Those are key words in Revelation 17. So he went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And, and Salome said, mother? Is that what she said? No! In fact we're told in Mark 6 verse 25, the very next verse, immediately 
she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Was the king sorry? Did he realize that he had been deceived? Let me ask you, at the end of time, is it the civil powers of the world that we need to be concerned about? No. Is it really the daughters of the harlot that we need to be concerned about? No. It is the mother that God's people have to be concerned about, according to Scripture. Because she's the one that moves everything from behind the scenes. And so we're told, and the king was exceedingly sorry. Yet because of the oaths, what kind of character did he have? He was a weakling. He had no moral backbone. Just like it's going to happen with the kings of the world at the end of time. They will go along with what the harlot wants. We'll study that tomorrow. And so it says, and the king was exceedingly sorry. Yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. And then verses 27 and 28 have the, the rest of the sad story. It says, immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison. And now listen to this brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and then what does it say? and the girl gave it to her mother who is the daughter attempting to please? she's attempting to please her mother through the daughter the mother influences the king to destroy John the Baptist now you notice that there are two kinds of Elijah's there's the translated Elijah and there's the Elijah that dies. And you say, now, now, now why do you have an Elijah that is translated and an Elijah that dies? The reason is very simple. Whenever you have an Elijah that is followed by an individual who dies, that Elijah dies. And whenever you have an Elijah that prepares the way who, uh, for someone who does not die, in this case the second coming of Christ, you have an Elijah who is translated from among the living. Now notice Malachi 4 verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Are we to expect the coming of another Elijah? Let me ask you, was the coming of Christ the great and terrible day of the Lord? Was it a day burning like an oven, like you find in the verses immediately before these two verses? Was it a day when there will leave neither root nor branch? Absolutely not. That's speaking about the second coming of Christ. So we are to expect an end time Elijah. James White wrote something very interesting about typology in Review and Herald. April 5, 1870, he said, the first and second advents are in many respects parallel events. Single prophecies all often contemplate both. The prophetic utterances glancing from one to the other in quick transition. 
such prophecies receive a partial fulfillment in the events of the first advent and a complete accomplishment in events connected with the second and then he says of such a nature we believe are some of the predictions of Malachi so John the Baptist was a partial fulfillment of the Elijah prophecy and we are to expect another Elijah right before the second coming of Christ an Elijah that will be translated from among the living because the Messiah that will come will be a living Messiah Desire of Ages page 102 Ellen White concurs with her husband James White when she says in preparing the way for Christ's first advent John the Baptist was a representative of those is that singular or plural? plural he was representative of those who are to prepare a people for our Lord's second coming so what is the principle? the principle is that in the Old Testament as well as in the times of John the Baptist when the theocracy has not ended and God is dealing with literal Israel you have literal Israel dealing with literal people on a local stage but the principle is that in the church of the Middle Ages in the end time you are dealing with spiritual Israel and, um, and the individuals in the Old Testament and in the New Testament represent groups of people or systems that are global in scope now you know folks that every time that the church has used the state the result has been repression and persecution in this story of Elijah we have a, a vile king weakling we have a religious advisor who moves the strings and we have the false prophets or the daughter who daughter who do who does the biddings of the woman you know you find stories similar to this in other places of the Bible remember the story of Esther? very interesting do you have a king in the story of Esther? yeah D does he really know what's going on? no he doesn't have the foggiest idea but when he wakes up he's pretty mad but he's not mad at the Jews he's mad at the one who created the plot you have a vile woman in the story of Esther also you say who is she? Zeresh the wife of Haman she's the one that told him make a gallows to hang Mordecai and then you have a third individual which is Haman himself and you have God's true people Israel who are under sentence of death the point is folks that whenever the church uses the state to accomplish its purposes the result is repression and persecution and our political leaders in the United States and in the world should listen carefully to this you know it's a sobering thought folks that Jesus Christ was crucified by a vile union of church and state you see the Jews could not execute the death decree they gave him first of all a religious trial just like happened during the Middle Ages with the Inquisition first there was a religious trial an ecclesiastical trial if the individual was found guilty of heresy he was then taken to the civil power so that the civil power would execute that individual that's exactly what they did with Jesus the Sanhedrin did an inquisition of Jesus they found him guilty of heresy but they could not destroy him as a church 
And so what they did, they took Jesus to Pilate and they said, we can't execute anyone, we need your help. And so by using Pilate, the political power, Jesus was led to the cross. And so whenever in the Bible the church uses the state to accomplish its purposes, the result is persecution. And you know what's interesting? About six months before Jesus died as a result of this union, and we know that he died for the sins of the world, but the mechanism that was used was the union of church and state. You know, about six months before this, the Sanhedrin met together and they said, we have to do something with this fellow because everybody's following him. The story is in John 11. Jesus had just resurrected Lazarus. And Caiaphas, who was the high priest at that time, stood up and he says, and you know the words, he said, it is necessary for one man to die and not that the whole nation should perish. It was a matter of national security. Interesting. But you know what's interesting? The Jews felt that by using the Romans to destroy Christ, they would save their nation, but by using the Romans to destroy Christ, the Romans came and destroyed the nation. And so folks, whenever the church links with the state, the result is repression and persecution. That's why it would be good for our political leaders to simply govern in political affairs and not allow the church to influence the state to have anything to do with religion. That's why we have a First Amendment into the, in the Constitution of the United States. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or forbidding the free exercise thereof. But we know that this is going to be revoked someday. Do you know, in the French Revolution, the multitudes that had been deceived by the, politi by, by the uh, Roman Catholic system that had joined the state during the Dark Ages, the people were enraged and those who had followed this system arose to annihilate it during the French Revolution. In fact, Revelation chapter 17, which we will study uh, tomorrow morning, you'll find that the, the harlot is doing real well. She's fornicating with the kings. They're having a jolly good time. They're enjoying her wine uh, that, that she's giving to the kings. And the kings are filled with wrath against God's people who don't go along. But the Bible says that one day the kings of the earth will awaken and they will see that the religious system has deceived them. And do you know what's going to happen? Revelation chapter 17 verse 16 says that the kings will hate the harlot and they will leave her naked and they will burn her with fire and they will consume her flesh. That's a way of saying that they're going to be real mad at her. <laughs> and they're going to arise to destroy her because they will realize that they have been deceived into persecuting the wrong people instead of persecuting, instead of destroying those who wanted to use the state to accomplish their purposes. And so folks, in the story of Elijah, we find a whole typology of end time events. When you put all of the three previous Elijahs together and you look at all of the details and you combine them, you have a complete picture of the end time Elijah because each of the previous Elijah gives you parts of the story. But when you put all of the Elijahs together, you have a complete picture of what it's going to look like at the end of time. 
And I'd like to end by saying this. Pilate, the political ruler, when the church of that day and age, those who claimed to serve God, came and they said, we want this man killed and we need the authority of the state to do it. Pilate was deliberating and somebody came and said to him, your wife sends you a message. Have nothing to do with this man. Is that a message for the political rulers of the world today when it comes to God's remnant? Absolutely. Have nothing to do with this man. But you know what? Pilate, the weakling that he was, to save his political position, delivered an innocent man to death. And that's exactly what is going to happen at the end of time. And folks, the persecutors are not going to be the Muslims. The persecutors are not going to be the Buddhists or the Hindus. The persecutors, if you take the story of Elijah, are going to be those who claim to serve God. Because the message of Elijah is a message to the church. The message of Elijah is not a message primarily to the world at large, although it can apply there. It is a message to God's church that is falling into apostasy and God says to the church, come back to the straight and narrow. Come back to the reason why I called you. Come back to the Creator God. Come back to keeping the commandments of God because you love God. Come back to the Lord. Amen. Repent of your apostasy. Who's going to deliver this message to the world? God has called the remnant church to do that. He has called us to be that Elijah. But in order to do it, we must have the commitment that Elijah had. Be willing to preach God's message even in the face of death. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.